Negotiating Your Salary, I Will Teach You to Be Rich Style. In Chapter 4, I told you about asking for a raise at your current job. But the single best time to negotiate your salary is when you're starting a new job. You have the most leverage, and with some basic preparation, you can earn five or $10,000 in a simple 10-minute conversation. Thousands of my students have used my free YouTube videos, my negotiation courses, and the scripts that I'm about to share with you to increase their salaries. When I coach people on negotiation, I pretend to be the hiring manager. I told you I love role plays. And I ask them the toughest questions that they might face. When we finish four or five hours later, they are exhausted. They're cranky. But the people I've coached end up negotiating, on average, $6,000 more in salary. Now, on my website, we offer a course that includes videos of actual negotiations and word-for-word scripts. But for now, let me give you some of the best material that we have right here. Negotiating is 90% mindset and 10% tactics. Think about it. Most people don't even believe they should negotiate. They're afraid of being rude or of having the employer rescind their offer. That almost never happens, especially because the company may have already spent up to $5,000 recruiting you. If you negotiate, you're actually communicating that you value yourself more highly than the average employee. Are you average? If not, why would you settle for an average salary? Jason Flam, 35 years old, wrote, Because of your book and subsequent teachings, my salary has gone from $25,000 a year to $80,000 a year. It doesn't matter if it's a yard sale, buying a car, or getting a higher salary. I hit negotiations hard and prepared. I get something extra, whether it's time or money, every time I negotiate. Your book set me on that path. The basics of negotiating are very simple. Number one, remember that nobody cares about you. Nobody. Maybe your mom and dad care about you, but nobody else cares about you. Most new employees come to the table talking about how much they want to make. To be totally honest, as a hiring manager, I don't really care what you want to make. Personally, I'd like to be fed octopus ceviche on command. So what? When you're negotiating, remember this. When it comes to you, your manager cares about two things. How you're going to make him or her look better and how you're going to help the company do well. Here's your negotiating tactic. Always frame your negotiation requests in a way that shows how the company will benefit. Don't focus on the amount you'll cost the company. Instead, illustrate how much value you can provide. If your work will help them drive an initiative that makes a million dollars for the company, point that out explicitly. Tie your work to the company's strategic goals and show the boss how you'll make her look good. Highlight the ways you'll make your boss's life easier by being the go-to person she can hand anything to. And remember, your company's going to make a lot more money than they pay you, so make sure you highlight the ways you'll help your company hit its goals. Here's a key phrase you can use. Let's find a way to arrive at a fair number that works for both of us. Number two, have another job offer and use it. This is the single most effective thing you can do to increase your salary. When you have another job offer, your potential employers will have a newfound respect for your skills. People like other people who are in demand. Here's your negotiating tactic. Interview with multiple companies at once. Be sure to let each company know when you get another job offer, but don't reveal the amount of the exact offer itself. You're under no obligation to. In the best case, you're going to see two companies get into a bidding war and fight over you. You can just sit back and eat popcorn and watch two multinational firms rumble over you. Personally, I can think of no better way to spend a casual weekday. Number three, come prepared. And remember, 99% of people don't. Don't just pick a salary request out of thin air. Visit salary.com and payscale.com. Get a median amount for that position. And then if you can, go above and beyond. Talk to people who are currently at the company. Or if you're really savvy, find someone who has recently left. People who have left the company are much more willing to be open about what's going on at the company, how much you're paid, and what you need to know in order to land a job. Finally, and this is important, 
bring a plan of how you'll hit your goals to the negotiating session. Nobody does this. I call it the briefcase technique. Here's your negotiating tactic. First off, remember, most of the negotiation happens before you ever get in the room. Call your contacts. Figure out the salary amount that you would love. Figure out the amount that you can realistically get. And then also figure out what you will settle for. And remember, don't just ask for money. Literally bring a strategic plan of what you want to do in this position and hand it to the hiring manager. Do you realize how few people actually do this? Most people just show up and say, okay, what do you want to know? You're going way above and beyond. You can Google briefcase technique Ramit Sethi to find out exactly how to do this. This alone can win you $2,000 to $5,000. And of course, it allows you to negotiate on the value you're going to bring to the company, not just the amount they'll pay you. Number four, have a toolbox of negotiating tricks up your sleeve. Just as in a job interview, you want to have a list of things in your head that you can use to strengthen your negotiation. Think about your strong points and figure out ways you might be able to bring them to the hiring manager's attention. For example, here's a question you might ask your hiring manager. What qualities make someone do an extraordinary job in this role? If they say the person should be very focused on metrics, you can respond with something like, I'm so glad you said that. We're really on the same page. In fact, when I was at my last company, I launched a product that used an analytical package to XYZ. Here's your negotiating tactic. Have a repertoire of your accomplishments and aptitudes right at your fingertips. You can include these in your responses to commonly asked questions. These should include the following. Stories about successes you've had at previous jobs that illustrate key strengths and questions to ask the negotiator if the conversation gets off track. For example, what do you like most about this job? Oh, really? That's interesting, because when I was at my last job, I found dot, dot, dot. Number five, negotiate for more than money. Don't forget to discuss whether or not the company offers a bonus, stock options, flexible commuting, or further education. You can also negotiate vacations and often even job title. Note, startups don't look very fondly on people negotiating vacations because it sets a bad tone, but they love negotiating stock options because top performers always want more, as that aligns them with the company's goals. Here's your negotiating tactic. Your last line that you'll use is, let's talk about total comp, which refers to total compensation, not just salary, but everything. Treat them each as levers. If you pull one up, you can afford to let another fall. Use the levers strategically. For example, by conceding something you don't really care about, like working from home on Friday, so you can both come to a happy agreement. Number six, be cooperative, not adversarial. If you've gotten to the point of negotiating a salary, the company wants you, and you probably want them, which is awesome. Now you just need to figure out how to make it work. It's not about you demanding more or them screwing you for less. Negotiation is about finding a cooperative solution to creating a fair package that will work for both of you. So check your attitude. You should be confident, not cocky, and eager to find a deal that benefits you both. Here's your negotiating tactic. The phrase to use here is, you know what, we're pretty close. Now let's see how we can make this work. Number seven, smile. I'm not joking. You can actually hear it in my voice. Smile. This is one of the most effective techniques you can use in negotiation. It's a disarming technique to break up the tension, and it demonstrates that you're a real person. When I was interviewing for college scholarships, I kept getting passed over until I finally saw a videotape of myself, and then I started smiling. That is when I started winning a bunch of scholarships. Here's your negotiating tactic. Just smile. Really, do it. It works. Number eight, practice negotiating with multiple friends. This sounds hokey, but it works better than you can imagine. If you practice out loud, you'll be amazed at how quickly you improve. Yet nobody ever does it because it feels weird. You know what else feels weird? Having an extra $10,000 in your pocket. For example, one of my friends thought it was too weird to practice negotiating. So when he faced a professional hiring manager, the guy didn't have a prayer. 
Later, he came to me like a clinically depressed Eeyore, whining about how he didn't negotiate. What could I say? The guy didn't deserve to get paid more. He didn't do the preparation. This lack of practice can cost, on average, five to $10,000. Here's your negotiating tactic. Call over your toughest, most grizzled friend and have him grill you. Don't laugh during the role play. Treat it like it's a real negotiation. Better yet, videotape it. You will be truly shocked at how much you learn from watching the tape. Now, if it sounds ridiculous, think about the benefits not only of the additional money, but the respect you'll get from your new boss for going through a polished, professional negotiation. Number nine, if it doesn't work, save face. Sometimes the hiring manager just won't budge. In that case, you need to be prepared to either walk away or take the job with a salary that's lower than what you wanted. If you do take the job, always give yourself an option to renegotiate down the line and get it in writing. Here's your negotiating tactic. Your line here is, I understand you can't offer me what I'm looking for right now. Fair enough. But let's assume I do an excellent job over the next six months. Assuming my performance is just extraordinary, I would like to talk about renegotiating then. I think that's fair, right? Get the hiring manager to agree, and then you can say, great, let's put that in writing, and we're good to go. Elizabeth Sullivan Burton, 30 years old, wrote, When I first read the IWT book around 2012, I was making $10.25 an hour working full-time at a hotel front desk. After reading your section on negotiation, I negotiated my first raise. Not a crazy raise, but I wouldn't have gotten it if I hadn't read your book. I made $520. I've used your advice to negotiate two raises since then. Once to go from $35,000 to $42,000 and once to go from $40,000 to $50,000. So in raises alone, I figure I've made about $8,500 due to buying your book. Five things you should never do in a negotiation. Number one, don't tell them your current salary. Why do they need to know? I'll tell you, so they can offer you just a little bit more than what you're currently making. If you're asked, this is what you say, I'm sure we can find a number that's fair to both of us. If they press you, push back. I'm not comfortable revealing my salary, so let's move on. What else can I answer for you? You should note that typically first-line recruiters will ask for these. If they won't budge, ask to speak to the hiring manager. No recruiter wants to be responsible for losing a great candidate, so this will usually, though not always, get you through the gatekeeper. If the gatekeeper insists on knowing, then I recommend you play ball, realizing that you can negotiate later. As a side note, in New York, asking for your current salary is actually against the law. Number two, don't make the first offer. That's their job. If they ask you to suggest a number, smile and say, now come on, that's your job. What's a fair number that we can both work from? Number three, if you've got another offer from a company that's generally regarded to be mediocre, don't reveal the company's name. When asked for the name, just say something general but true, like, it's another tech company that focuses on online consumer applications. If you say the name of the mediocre company, the negotiator's going to know that he's got you. He'll tear down the other company, which I would do too, and it will all be true. He won't focus on negotiating. He'll just tell you how much better it will be at his company. So withhold the information. Number four, don't ask yes or no questions. Instead of, you offered me $50,000. Can you do $55,000? Say this instead. $50,000 is a great number to work from, so thank you. We're in the same ballpark, but how can we get to 55000 Number five, never lie. Don't say you have another offer when you don't. Don't inflate your current salary. Don't promise things you can't deliver. I believe you should always be truthful in negotiations. Case study. How my friend got a 28% raise by doing her homework. I helped my friend Rachel, who's 25 years old, negotiate a job offer and at my request, she wrote up the process. Here's what she said. First, the big picture. I got a 28% raise in base salary, which comes out to more than $1,000 an hour based on how much time I spent getting the job, plus stock options, which at least allow me the luxury of dreaming 
about becoming a gazillionaire. I've applied to and been ignored for many, many job openings, more than I care to share. Despite this, I decided to jump back into the job market a few months ago after doing marketing for a large hotel in San Francisco. I found a marketing manager position on a website, and through it, I sent in a resume, which snagged a phone interview, which was followed by an in-person interview, which was followed by an offer letter. It sounds like cakewalk, right? Actually, the VP of marketing told me that I had the least experience of anyone she was interviewing. Then she hired me anyway. I can't pinpoint exactly why I was successful in getting this job, especially in contrast to all of my past attempts, but I can think of a few things that probably made the difference. My strategies weren't rocket science, but they involved time and effort, two things that definitely make a difference in separating you from the pack. Number one, I broke down their job posting line by line, and I wrote down my skills and projects I'd worked on that directly related to their description. Number two, I researched their website extensively. I read articles about the company. I looked up the management team's backgrounds so that I could speak knowledgeably about the company and why I was a good fit. Number three, I prepared a spiel about my somewhat eclectic resume, which can look unfocused if not set in the proper context. Number four, I called an expert on startups, finance, bargaining, and a half dozen other things to get some outside counsel. Ramit gave me some key advice, including tell them you want to get your hands dirty and suggest three things you would do to enhance their marketing efforts. Yes, he does talk just like he writes on his blog. Number five, I actually took Ramit's advice, which is where a lot of my work came in. I dreamed up three proposals for generating greater interest at trade shows, better responses to direct marketing efforts, and increased name recognition in the general population. Wow, so the interview must have gone really well, right? Not quite. And Rachel's description of what she did is a classic case of turning a missed opportunity into a chance to win. She continues, I never actually found a good opportunity to mention my ideas. This despite a four-hour interview. I emailed the proposals to my potential boss instead. I then individually emailed every person I spoke to that day to thank them for their time. Might have been overkill, but then again, my email flurry may have been the tipping point for my hiring. My references later told me that my VP had been impressed with my energy and intelligence and had decided she would rather train someone with potential than hire a more experienced and perhaps less flexible individual. Three weeks of research and planning paid off with an entirely new career, a pretty stellar return on the investment of my time. Now, back to me. Just notice how this is the exact embodiment of everything this book stands for. Rachel carefully researched her options. She took action. She reached out to more experienced people for advice and came in with a presentation that was better than everyone else's. In fact, so much better that she actually didn't have to negotiate much. And when she didn't get a chance to show off all of her presentation, she sent it by email, even though some people might think that's weird. Getting rich isn't about one silver bullet or one secret strategy. It happens through regular, boring, disciplined action. Most people see only the results of this action. They see the winnable moment or an article in the press. But it's the behind-the-scenes work that really makes you rich. If you want to learn more about negotiation, I've put together a package of in-depth negotiation videos and tips for you. You can check out IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com slash bonus for details. How to save thousands on big-ticket items. When it comes to saving money, big purchases are your chance to shine. And also, to dominate your clueless friends who are so proud of not ordering Cokes when they eat out, yet waste thousands of dollars when they buy large items like furniture, a car, or a house. When you buy something major, you can save massive amounts of money, like $2,000 on a car or $40,000 on a house that will make your other attempts to save money pale in comparison. Big-ticket items like these, however, are where people most commonly make mistakes. They don't comparison shop. They overpay because a salesperson cons them into spending too much. And worst of all, they then think they got a good deal. Do not be one of these people. 
A fresh look at buying a car. It's strange how many people make an effort to save on things like clothes and eating out, but when it comes to large purchases like cars, they make poor decisions and erase any savings they've accumulated along the way. Let me first tell you that the single most important decision associated with buying a car is not the brand, it's not the mileage. Surprisingly, from a financial perspective, the most important factor is how long you keep the car before you sell it. You could get the best deal in the world, but if you sell the car after four years, you've lost money. Instead, understand how much you can afford, pick a reliable car, maintain it well, and then drive it for as long as humanly possible. Yes, that means you need to drive it for more than 10 years because it's only once you finish the payments that the real savings start. And by taking good care of your car, you can save even more enormous piles of money over the long term. Plus, you'll have a great car. There are four steps to buying a car. Budgeting, picking a car, negotiating like an Indian, and maintaining your car. First, ask yourself how buying a car fits into your spending and savings priorities. You can go back to Chapter 4 to refresh yourself on those topics. If you're satisfied with a used Toyota and you'd rather put extra money towards investing for growth, great. On the other hand, if you really love BMWs and you can afford to buy one, then you should do it. This is conscious spending applied to your life. Once you've thought about where your car fits in your priorities, you need to look at your conscious spending plan and decide what you're willing to allocate toward your car each month. This is the number you'll keep in your back pocket as the number you can afford to spend up to. Ideally, you'll spend less. By the way, ignore the random offers for $199 a month. Those are scammy introductory rates that are almost never real. So, knowing that there will be other expenses involved in the total expense of having a car, you want to decide how much you want to spend on the car itself. For example, if you can afford a total monthly payment of $500 toward your car, you can probably afford a car that costs $200 to $250 per month. I'll give you an example why. When I lived in San Francisco, my monthly car payment was $350.75. But when you factored in insurance, gas, maintenance, and $200 a month in parking, it ended up being over $1,000 a month. So, with a budget of around $200 a month for yourself, that means you can afford a car that costs around $12,000 over five years. Now, that's pretty sobering compared with what most people think they can afford, right? That example shows you how easy it is to overspend on a car. Don't buy a horrible car. Please, pick a good car. There are some cars that are just objectively bad decisions that nobody should ever buy. For example, has anyone with an IQ over 42 ever consciously chosen to buy a Ford Focus? What the hell's wrong with you guys? Sadly, many people I know are seduced by the shiny cars at the dealership. But it's important to remember you're not just buying the car for today. You're buying it for the next 10 plus years. I have friends who have bought expensive cars. Some of them love their cars. Some of them love driving them every single day. For others, the newness wore off. And now it's just a tool for their daily commute, an expensive tool that they regret. First, any car you evaluate must fit within your budget. This is going to automatically eliminate most cars. Don't even look at the cars you can't afford. Second, the car must be a good car. Now, who decides what a good car is? One man's trash is another man's treasure. Listen, there's one person who will tell you what a good car is. That's me. Here's what makes a good car. Reliability. When I bought a car, above all... I wanted one that would not break down. I have enough stuff going on in my life, and I want to avoid car repair issues that cost time and money as much as possible. Because this was a high priority for me, I was willing to pay slightly more for it. A car you love. I've written time and time again about consciously spending on the things you love. Since I'd be driving the car around for a long time, I wanted to pick one that I really liked driving. And like a dutiful Indian son, I love not having to worry about it breaking down. Resale value. One of my friends bought a $20,000 Acura, drove it for about seven years, and then sold it for 50% of the price. That means she got a fantastic deal on driving a new car for seven years. To check out how your potential cars will fare, visit the Kelly Blue Book site 
and calculate resale prices in 5, 7, and 10 years. You'll be surprised how quickly most cars depreciate and how others, especially Toyotas and Hondas, retain their value. Insurance. The insurance rates for a new and used car can be pretty different. Even if they're only slightly different, let's say 50 bucks a month, that can add up to a lot over many years. Fuel efficiency. It makes sense to factor this in, especially if you drive a lot. This could be a very important factor in determining the value of a car over the long term. The down payment. This is important. If you don't have much cash to put down, a used car is more attractive because the down payment, that is, the money you have to pay upfront when you buy the car, is typically lower. And if you put $0 down, the interest charges on a new car will be much more. In my case, I had cash available to put down. Interest rate. The interest rate on your car loan will depend on your credit, which is why having a good credit score matters. If you have multiple sources of good credit, your interest rate is likely to be lower. And this becomes more important over a longer-term loan. Each car dealership will negotiate differently. Don't be afraid to walk out if the dealer tries to change the finance terms on you at the last minute. That is a common trick. Do's and don'ts for buying a car. Do calculate total cost of ownership, or TCO. This means you figure out how much you'll be spending over the life of the car. And these expenses can have a big effect on your finances. Besides the cost of the car and the interest on your loan, your TCO should include maintenance, gas, insurance, and resale value. By understanding even a rough ballpark of how much these invisible costs will run you, you'll be able to save more accurately and avoid surprises when you get a $600 car repair fee. Do buy a car that will last you at least 10 years, not one that looks cool. Looks fade, and you're still going to be stuck with the payments, so optimize for the long term. Don't lease. Leasing nearly always benefits the dealer, not you. The two exceptions are people who want the newest car and they're willing to pay a lot for it, and the occasional business owner who leases a car for tax purposes. For most IWT readers, leasing is a bad decision. Instead, remember, buy a car and hold it for the long term. Years ago, Consumer Reports found that buying an average sedan, the Honda Accord, would cost $4,597 less over five years than leasing the exact same model. I ran the same calculation with a new model Toyota Camry and found the same thing. Buying would save $6,000 over six years versus leasing, and even more over time. Don't sell your car in fewer than seven years. The real savings come once you've paid off your car loan and driven it for as long as possible. Most people sell their cars way too early. It's much cheaper to maintain your car well and drive it into the ground. Don't assume you have to buy a used car. Run the numbers. Over the long term, a new car may end up saving you money if you pick the right new car, pay the right price, and drive it for a long time. Don't stretch your budget for a car. Set a realistic budget for your car and don't go over it. Be honest with yourself. Other expenses will come up. Maybe they're car-related, maybe not. And you don't want to end up struggling because you can't afford your monthly car payment. Conquering car salespeople by out-negotiating them. I've seen more than my share of negotiations, including watching my dad negotiate with car dealers for multiple days. I think we actually ate breakfast at a dealership once. You must negotiate mercilessly with dealers. I've never seen as many people make bad purchasing decisions as when they're in a car dealer's office. If you're not a hardball negotiator, fine, but take someone with you who is. If possible, buy a car at the end of the year when dealers are salivating to beat their quotas and they're far more willing to negotiate. Their saliva is your salvation. I also highly recommend using Fighting Chance, an information service for car buyers, which will arm you before you negotiate. For the price they charge, the service is completely worth it. You can order a customized report of the exact car you're looking for, which will tell you exactly how much dealers are paying for that car including details about little-known dealer withholding. For example, I spent a month researching and planning, and then I bought my car for $2,000 under invoice. 
The service also provides specific tips for how to negotiate from the comfort of your sofa. You don't even have to set foot in a car dealership until the very end. In fact, here's how I did it. When I decided to buy, at the end of December, when salespeople are desperate to meet their quotas, I reached out to 17 car dealers and told them exactly which car I wanted. I said I was prepared to buy the car within two weeks, and because I knew exactly how much profit they would make off the car, I would go with the lowest price offered to me. The same day, as I sat back with a cup of Earl Grey tea and three tacos with habanero salsa, responses started rolling in from the dealers. After I had all the offers, I called the dealers, I told them the lowest price I'd received, and I gave them each a chance to beat it. This resulted in a bidding war that led to a downward spiral of near-orgasmic deals. In the end, I chose a dealer in Palo Alto who sold me the car for 2000 bucks under invoice. That's a nearly unheard of price. I didn't have to waste my time going to multiple dealerships, and I didn't have to bother with slimy car salespeople. I only went to one dealer's office, the winning one. Boring but profitable. Maintaining your car. I know that keeping your car well-maintained doesn't sound sexy, but it will make you rich when you eventually sell your car. So take your car's maintenance as seriously as your retirement savings. As soon as you buy your car, enter the major maintenance checkpoints into your calendar so you remember them. Here's a hint. The average car is driven about 15,000 miles a year. You can use that number as a starting point to calculate a maintenance schedule based on the car manufacturer's instructions. Of course, you also need to have regular oil changes, watch your tire pressure, and keep your car clean. I keep a record of each service I have along with any notes. And when I sell my car, I'll show the documentation to the buyer to prove how meticulous I've been and charge the buyer accordingly. People often forget this and slap their foreheads when they go to sell their car only to be negotiated down by somebody like me for not keeping detailed maintenance records. Don't let yourself get outmaneuvered by a lack of paperwork. The biggest big ticket item of all, buying a house. If I asked people, hey, would you like to make $100,000 in a year? Who wouldn't say yes? And if I sweeten the offer by saying you'd only have to spend 10 hours per week that year to do it, I guarantee every single person I asked would go for it. So why don't people spend that amount of time researching the biggest purchase of their lives? By doing the research that 99% of other people don't, you can save tens of thousands of dollars on your house over the life of your loan. Buying a house is the most complicated and significant purchase you'll ever make, so it pays to understand everything about it beforehand. And I mean everything. Guys, this isn't a pair of pants at Banana Republic. When you buy a house worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, you should be an expert on common mistakes that most home buyers make. You should know all the real estate terms, as well as how to push and pull to get the best deal. And you should understand that houses are primarily for living in, not for making huge cash gains. Look, if you buy a house without opening up a spreadsheet and entering in some numbers, <laughs> you are a fool. Remember, if you can save $75,000 or $125,000 over the entire course of a 30-year loan just by educating yourself a little bit, it's worth your time. I'm going to help you figure out if buying a house is right for you. And then I'm going to give you an overview of the things you'll need to do over the next few months, at least three months, probably 12, to prepare to buy. I can't cover all the tips here, but I'll get you started with the basics. Who should buy a house? From our earliest days, we're taught that the American dream is to own a house, have 2.5 kids, and retire into the sunset. In fact, I have friends who, when they graduated from college, wanted their first major purchase to be a house. What the hell? No spending plan, no 401k, they can barely afford extra tacos at Taco Tuesday, but they want to buy a house now? When I ask my younger friends why they want to buy a house, they just stare at me blankly. They're a good investment, they reply, like brainless automatons who are at risk of being smacked by me. Actually, houses really aren't very good investments in general, but I'll cover that in a minute. Back to who should buy. First and foremost, you should buy a house only if it makes financial sense. Now, in the olden days, this meant that your house would cost no more than 2.5 times your annual income, 
it meant that you'd be able to put 20% of the purchase price down and that the total monthly payments, including the mortgage, maintenance, insurance, and taxes, would be about 30% of your gross income. If you make 50 grand a year before taxes, that means your house would cost $125,000, you'd put $25,000 down, and total monthly payments would be $1,250 per month. Yeah, right. Maybe if you live in the Ozarks. Things are a little different now, but that doesn't explain the stupidity of people who purchase houses for 10 times their salary with zero money down. Sure, you can stretch those traditional guidelines a little, but if you buy something you simply cannot afford, it will come back and bite you in the ass. Let me be crystal clear. Can you afford at least 20% down for your house? If not, then set a savings goal and don't even think about buying until you reach it. Even if you've got a down payment, you still need to be sure you make enough money to cover the monthly payments. Now I know, I know, you might be tempted to think, well, I'm paying $1,000 a month for my apartment, so I can definitely afford $1,000 a month for a house. Wrong. First off, chances are you're going to want to buy a nicer house than the one you're currently renting, which means the monthly payment will likely be higher. Second, when you buy a house, you'll owe property taxes, insurance, and maintenance fees that will add hundreds of dollars per month. If your garage door breaks or the toilet needs repairing, that's coming out of your pocket, not the landlord's. And you and I both know home repairs are ridiculously expensive. So even if your mortgage payment is the same $1,000 a month as your rental, your real cost on that mortgage will likely be 40 to 50% higher. In this case, more like $1,500 a month when you factor everything in. Bottom line, if you don't have enough money to make a down payment and cover your total monthly costs, you need to set up a savings goal and wait to buy until you've proven that you can hit your goal consistently month after month. Next thing to think about, are the houses you're looking at within your price range? <laughs> it's funny how so many people I know want to live in only the grandest possible house. Now sure, your parents might live in one of those now, but it probably took them 30 or 40 years to be able to afford it. Now unless you're already loaded, you might need to readjust your expectations and begin with a starter house. Starter houses are called that for a reason. They're simple houses that require you to make trade-offs, but they allow you to get started. Now, your first house probably won't have as many bedrooms as you want. It won't be in the most amazing location, but it will let you get started making consistent monthly payments and building equity. Finally, will you be able to stay in that house for at least 10 years? Remember how I talked about buying a car just a few minutes ago and how you actually get savings once you hold that car for a long time? Well, the same is true for buying a house. Buying a house means you're staying put for a long time. Some people say five years, but the longer you stay in your house, the more you save. Why? Well, there are a few reasons for this. When you go through a traditional real estate agent, there are large transaction fees, usually 6% of the selling price. Divide that by just a few years, and it hits you a lot harder than if you'd held the house for 10 or 20 years. There are also the costs associated with moving. And depending on how you structure your sale, you may pay a significant amount in taxes. The bottom line here, buy only if you're planning to live in the same place for 10 years or more. I have to emphasize that buying a house is not just a natural step that everyone has to take at some point. Too many people assume this and then they get in over their heads. Buying a house changes your lifestyle forever. No matter what, you have to make your monthly payment every month or you'll lose your house and watch your credit tank. This affects the kind of jobs you can take. It affects your level of risk tolerance. It means you'll need to save for a six-month emergency plan in case you lose your job and can't pay your mortgage. In short, you really need to be sure you're ready for the responsibility of being a homeowner. Of course, there are certainly some benefits to buying a house, and like I said, most American households will purchase one in their lifetime. If you can afford it, and if you're sure you'll be staying in the same area for a long time, buying a house can be a great way to make a significant purchase, build equity, and create a stable place to raise a family. The truth. Real estate is a poor investment for most individual investors.
America's biggest investments are their houses, but real estate is also the place where Americans lose the most money. Real estate agents and most homeowners are not going to like me after this section, but in truth, real estate is the most overrated investment in America. It's a purchase first, a very expensive one, and an investment second. If you're thinking of your primary residence as an investment, real estate provides mediocre returns at best. First, there's just the problem of risk. If your house is your biggest investment, how diversified is your portfolio? If you pay $2,000 a month to a mortgage, are you investing $6,000 elsewhere to balance your risk? <laughs> of course not. Second, the facts show that real estate offers a very poor return for individual investors. Yale economist Robert Schiller found that from 1915 through 2015, home prices have increased, on average, only 0.6% per year. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but it's true. We fool ourselves into thinking we're making money when we simply are not. For example, let's say someone buys a house for $250,000, and 20 years later they sell it for $400,000. What do they think? They think, great, I made 150 grand. But actually, they've forgotten to factor in very important costs like property taxes, maintenance, and the opportunity cost of not having that money in the stock market. The truth is that over time, investing in the stock market has trumped real estate quite handily. And it's why renting can be a great decision. Just to give you a personal example, I rent by choice. I've saved up enough money to more than put a down payment on a house in a sub-savings account that I have, but I have intentionally rented for the last decade. Why? Because I've run the numbers, and for me, it makes no sense to buy right now. I don't know if I'll be in the same place 10 years from now. If I were to buy, the type of place I would want would be at least as nice, if not nicer than where I currently live, and therefore I would rather take that money, save it, and frankly invest it in the market for over 10 years to get superior returns. Now, I'm not saying that buying a house is always a bad decision. It's just that you should think of it as a purchase rather than as an investment. And just as with any other purchase, you should buy a house and keep it for as long as possible. Do your homework and then negotiate and know your alternatives like renting. Buying versus renting, the surprising numbers. I want to show you why renting is actually a smart decision for lots of people, especially if you live in a high cost of living area like New York or San Francisco. But first, let's get rid of the idea that renters are throwing away money because they're not building equity. Anytime you hear cliches like that from any area of personal finance, beware. It's just not true, and I'm going to show you the numbers to prove it. What you will hear here is that the total price of buying and owning a house is far greater than the house's sticker price. Listen to some of the sample numbers below. The costs of buying a home over 30 years. Purchase price of a typical single-family home, $220,000. Down payment, 10%, $22,000. Closing costs, $11,000. Private mortgage insurance, 76 payments of 0.5% PMI at $82.50 equals $6,270. Interest at 4.5%, $163,165.29. Taxes and insurance, $102,000. Maintenance, $66,000. Major repairs and improvements, $200,000. Total costs, $778,408.73. In the example I just gave you, your $220,000 house actually costs you over $750,000. And I'm not even including moving costs, the cost of new furniture, renovations, and the real estate fees when you sell the house, all of which will add up to tens of thousands of dollars. Now listen, you can agree or disagree with my exact numbers. What I want you to do is run them for yourself. And more importantly, I want you to understand all the phantom costs involved. When you rent, you're not paying all those other assorted fees, 
which effectively frees up tons of cash that you would have been spending on a mortgage. And as a side note, there's another common misconception. People say that renters are paying their landlord's mortgage. Remember this, landlords can't charge whatever they want. They can only charge what the market will bear. That's why some landlords are generating a profit each month, but many landlords are not. Some of them know it, many of them don't. Now the key to this is taking the money that you save on rent and investing the extra money. If you do nothing with it, or worse, you spend it all, you might as well buy a house. Just use it as a forced savings account. But if you've listened this far, chances are good that you'll take whatever extra money you have each month and invest it. Of course, like buying, renting isn't the best for everyone either. It all depends on your individual situation. The easiest way to see if you should rent or buy from a financial perspective is to use the New York Times excellent online calculator, which is called, Is It Better to Rent or Buy? It factors in maintenance, renovations, capital gains, the costs of buying and selling, inflation, and more. Becoming a homeowner. Tips for buying your new house. Like any area of personal finance, there are no secrets to buying a house. But it does involve thinking differently from most other people who make the biggest purchase of their lives without fully understanding the true costs. Although I may be aggressive with my asset allocation, I'm very conservative when it comes to real estate. That means I urge you to stick by tried-and-true rules like 20% down, a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, and a total monthly payment that represents no more than 30% of your gross income. If you can't do that, I strongly recommend you wait until you've saved more. Like I said, it's okay to stretch a little, but don't stretch beyond what you can actually pay. If you make a poor decision up front, it's very likely that you'll end up struggling, and that struggle can compound and become a bigger problem throughout the life of the loan. Don't let this happen, because it will undo all the hard work you've put into the other areas of your financial life. Remember, if you make a good financial decision when buying, you will be in an excellent position over time. You'll know exactly how much you're spending each month on your house, you'll be in control of your expenses, and you'll have money to pay your mortgage, invest, take vacations, buy a TV, or whatever else you want to do. Here are some of the things you'll need to do to make a sound decision. Number one, check your credit score. The higher your score, the better the interest rate on your mortgage will be. If your credit score is low, it might be a better decision to delay buying until you can improve it. Good credit translates into not only a lower total cost, but lower monthly payments. I want to share some math that will show you what I mean. Here are some numbers based around a 30-year fixed $220,000 loan. Let's assume that you have poor credit. Your FICO score is between 620 to 639. In this example, your interest rate would be 5.7%, which is a monthly payment of $1,287. Over the course of this 30-year loan, you would pay over $243,000 in interest. Now let's pretend that you have an excellent credit score. Your FICO score is between 760 and 850. Your APR would drop to 4.1%. That means your monthly payment would be $1,073. Now that might not seem like that big of a deal. It's a couple hundred bucks lower than the person with poor credit. However, in this case, over the course of a 30-year loan, you'll pay $166,378 in total interest. Think about that. The person with poor credit pays over $243,000, but the person with excellent credit pays only $166,000 in total interest. By the way, these numbers change over time. To find the latest figures, you can search for MyFICO Loan Savings Calculator. Number two, save as much money as possible for a down payment. Traditionally, you have to put 20% down. If you can't save enough to put 20% down, you'll have to get something called private mortgage insurance, also known as PMI, which serves as insurance against your defaulting on your monthly payments. PMI typically costs between 0.5% to 1% of the mortgage, plus an annual charge. 
Now, the more you put down, the less PMI you'll have to pay. Now, I want to get real with you. If you haven't been able to save at least 10% for a down payment, stop thinking about buying a house. If you can't even save 10%, how will you afford an expensive mortgage payment, plus maintenance and taxes and insurance and furniture and renovations and you get the idea. Set a savings goal for a down payment and don't start looking to buy until you reach it. Number three, calculate the total amount of buying a new house. Have you ever gone to buy a car or cell phone only to learn that it's way more expensive than advertised? I know I have, and most of the time, I just bought it anyway because I was already psychologically set on it. But because the numbers are so huge when purchasing a house, even small surprises will end up costing you a ton of money. For example, if you stumble across an unexpected cost of $100 a month, would you really cancel the paperwork for a new home? Probably not. But that minor charge would add up to $36,000 over the lifetime of a 30-year loan, plus the opportunity cost of investing it. Remember that the closing costs, including all administrative fees and expenses, are usually between 2 and 5% of the house price. So on a $200,000 house, that's $10,000. Keep in mind that ideally, the total price shouldn't be much more than three times your gross annual income. Again, it's okay to stretch here a little if you don't have any debt. And don't forget to factor in insurance, taxes, maintenance, and renovation. If all of this sounds a little overwhelming, it's telling you that you need to research all this stuff before buying a house. In this particular case, you should ask your parents and any other homeowners you know for their surprise costs. Or if you want to have some fun, just Google surprise costs of owning a house. Number four, get the most conservative, boring loan possible. I like a 30-year fixed rate loan. Yes, you'll pay more in interest compared with a 15-year loan, but a 30-year loan is more flexible because you can take the full 30 years to repay it or you can pay extra towards your loan and pay it off faster if you want. But to tell you the truth, you probably shouldn't. Consumer Reports simulated what to do with an extra $100 a month, comparing the benefits of prepaying your mortgage versus investing in an index fund that returned 8%. Over a 20-year period, the index fund won 100% of the time. As they said, quote, the longer you own your home, the less likely it is that mortgage prepayment will be the better choice. Number five, don't forget to check for perks. The government wants to make it easy for first-time homebuyers to purchase a house. Many state and local governments offer benefits for first-time homebuyers. Check out hud.gov slash topics slash buying underscore a underscore home to see the programs in your state. Just ask. It's worth it. And finally, don't forget to check with any associations you belong to, including local credit unions, alumni associations, and teachers' associations. You may get access to special lower mortgage rates. Hell, even check your Costco membership. They offer special rates for members, too. Number six, use online services to comparison shop. You may have heard about Zillow, which is a rich source of data about home prices all over the United States. Also check out Redfin and Trulia, which give you more information about buying a house, including tax records and neighborhood reviews. For your homeowner's insurance, check insure.com to comparison shop. And don't forget to call your auto insurance company and ask them for a discounted rate if you give them your homeowner's insurance business. Myths about owning a home. Prices in real estate always go up. Or the value of a house doubles every 10 years. That's not true. Net house prices haven't increased when you factor in inflation, taxes, and other homeowner fees. They appear to be higher because the sticker price is higher, but you need to dig beneath the surface. Also, it's highly dependent on geography. Certain cities outperform while others do not. You can use leverage to increase your money. Homeowners will often point to leverage as the key benefit of real estate. In other words, you can put 20K down for a $100,000 house, and if the house climbs to $120,000, you've effectively doubled your money. Unfortunately, leverage can also work against you if the price goes down. If your house declines by 
you don't just lose 10% of your equity. It's more like 20% once you factor in the 6% realtor's fees, the closing costs, new furniture, and all the other expenses. I can deduct my mortgage interest from my taxes and save a bunch of money. Also known as do it for the tax deduction. Be very careful here. Tax savings are great, but people forget that they're saving money they ordinarily would have never spent. That's because the amount you pay out owning a house is much higher than you would pay for any rental when you include maintenance, renovations, and higher insurance costs, to name a few. Furthermore, 2018 laws reduced the benefit of these tax deductions. How to Tackle Future Large Purchases We've covered weddings, cars, and houses, but there are plenty of other major expenses that people don't plan ahead for. Just think about having kids. The problem is that, as we've seen, if we don't plan ahead, it ends up costing you much more in the end. The good news is that you can anticipate and handle almost any major expense you'll encounter in life. Number one, acknowledge that you're probably not being realistic about how much things will cost, then force yourself to be. If you've listened to this entire book, and if you've taken even half my advice, then you're probably better at your finances than 95% of other people. And that's awesome, but you're still human. Sorry, but your wedding will be more expensive than you planned. Your house will have costs you didn't account for. Having a head-in-the-sand approach is the worst thing you can do. Bite the bullet, sit down, and make a realistic plan for how much your big purchases will cost you in the next 10 years. You can do it on a napkin. It doesn't have to be perfect. Just spend 20 minutes and see what you come up with. Number two, set up an automatic savings plan. Because almost nobody will take the advice that I just gave you five seconds ago, I suggest taking a shortcut. Set up an automatic savings plan and assume, for example, that you'll spend $35,000 on your wedding, $20,000 on a car, $20,000 for the first two years of your firstborn child, and however much you'll need for a typical down payment in the city of your choice. Then figure out how much you need to save. If you're 25 and you're going to buy a car and get married in three years, that's $45,000 divided by 36 months. That's $1,250. I know, I know, that's more than a thousand bucks a month. Maybe you can't afford that, but it's better to know now than later. Now ask yourself this, can you afford 300 bucks? If so, that's 300 bucks more than you were saving yesterday. Number three, you can't have the best of everything, so use the P word. Priorities are essential. Like I said, it's human nature to want the best for our wedding day or for our first house. We need to be realistic and acknowledge that. But we also need to acknowledge that we simply can't have the best of everything. Do you want the filet mignon or an open bar at your wedding? Do you want a house with a backyard or a neighborhood with better local schools? If you have the cost down on paper, you'll know exactly which trade-offs you can make to keep within your budget. But if you haven't written anything down, there will appear to be no trade-offs necessary, and that's how people get into staggering amounts of debt. For the things you decide aren't that important, beg, borrow, and steal to save money. If you're getting married and you decide location is important, then by all means, spend on it. In fact, spend extravagantly but choose the cheapest options for chairs and cutlery and flowers. If you're buying a car, skip the sunroof so you can get the model you want. And whatever you do, negotiate the hell out of big ticket purchases. This is where if you plan ahead, time gives you a major advantage. Giving back, elevating your goals beyond the day-to-day. -day. Most people spend their entire lives handling the day-to-day -day issues of money and never get ahead. Oh man, why did I buy that $300 jacket? Damn, I thought I canceled that subscription. Oh, can I really afford to stay at that hotel for an extra night? If you followed the steps in this book, you've moved past these basic questions. Instead of asking $3 questions, you're asking $30,000 questions. Your accounts work together automatically. You know how much you can afford to spend going out, and how much you want to save every month. And if something goes wrong, your system lets you easily see if you need to cut costs, make more money, 
or adjust your lifestyle. It's all there, right in your IWT financial system. This means it's time to start thinking about elevating your goals, thinking bigger than the day-to-day. This means you get an amazing opportunity, an opportunity to think about elevating your goals beyond the day-to-day. Lots of people are so consumed with the minutia of money that they've never really thought about what rich means to them. In fact, when I ask people, a lot of people simply tell me, I just want to pay off this debt. That's where their dream ends. But your dream can get bigger. You now have the opportunity to set larger goals and do the things you love using your money to support you. I believe that part of getting rich is giving back to the community that helped you flourish. Now, there are lots of traditional ways to do this. You can volunteer at a soup kitchen. You can become a big brother or a big sister. You don't need to be rich to give back. In fact, even $100 helps. Sites like Pencils of Promise or Kiva let you give directly to developing communities. In fact, I was really proud that the I Will Teach You To Be Rich community raised over $300,000 for Pencils of Promise, which resulted in building 13 schools for impoverished children around the world. Or you can donate to your high school, your local library, or environmental action groups, whatever means the most to you. And if you're short on cash, donate your time, which is often more valuable than money. This is something that my wife and I love doing. About once a month, we'll volunteer at a local organization in New York, and we invite our friends with us. It is an amazing way to spend time together and to give back to the community that has been so generous to us. If you think about it, philanthropy mirrors the very same principles of I will teach you to be rich that you just heard in this book. The simplest step can get you started. Pick an organization to support or a place to volunteer your time. You don't have to be rich to be a philanthropist, just as you don't have to be rich to invest. The point is that now you've got a personal finance system that very few other people have. And this allows you to elevate your goals beyond making it through the daily grind. You've already won that game. Now it's time to look at a bigger game. When you think back to last year, what was the one big thing you accomplished for yourself? What about the one thing you accomplished for others? What will it be this year? If I could hope for one thing from this book, it would be that you become a master of conscious spending. And then you go even further. You apply those skills to help the people around you. Maybe it'll be by mentoring a needy kid or establishing a scholarship or even just helping your friends manage their money for free. Whatever it is, you're now in the top tier of investing knowledge. And you've moved beyond managing your money for short-term goals and you're able to think strategically about your money and what it means to help you live a rich life. I think that includes how to help others as well. Now, if this were a movie, it would be raining, violin music would be swelling in the background, and a young soldier would slowly raise his right hand to salute an elderly general who has a single tear rolling down his cheek. Now, this is the beautiful moment in a movie, but this is also the beautiful moment in your life. Give yourself a pat on the back. You've accomplished something magical by creating your personal finance infrastructure. And my key message to you is you won that game. You get to think bigger now. A rich life for you and for others. If I've been successful, the end of this book is just the beginning of a rich future for you. We know that being rich isn't just about money. We know that most people around us have strong opinions about money, yet they're clueless with their own. And we know that conscious spending can be fun, especially when it's automated. But now that you know how money really works, there's one other thing. Not enough people know about being rich. You and I know that it's not some mythical thing that only happens to Ivy League grads and lottery winners. Anyone can be rich. It's just a question of what rich means to you. You've learned it. You know that money is a small but important part of a rich life. You know that life is meant to be lived outside the spreadsheet. And you know how to use money to design your rich life. Would you do me a favor and pass the word along to your friends? Help them focus on their goals too. A rich life is about more than money. It starts by managing your own. And it continues by helping others become rich. I'd like to share some bonus resources with you to help you earn more money. 
Get them at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com slash bonus. And one last thing. Send me an email. My email address is Ramit.Sati at IWillTeachYouToBeRich.com and you can put the subject line, My Rich Life. Let me know one thing that you learned from this book. I got to tell you, I would love to hear from you. This has been an Audible Studios production of I Will Teach You To Be Rich. No guilt, no excuses, no BS, just a six-week program that works, second edition. Written and performed by Ramit Sethi. Executive producers, Kristen Lang and Mike Charzik. Producer, Joy Smith. Copyright 2009-2019 by Ramit Sethi. Sound recording copyright 2019 by Audible Inc. Audible Studios is a division of Audible Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.